Blog Talk Radio. Let me tell you about something new. A new show called G's Power. G's Power. Real talk for real saints. Are you ready? And it's for real. Welcome to G's Power Hour live every weekday at 1130 a.m. on Never Had It So Good Entertainment Network. Your host, G, will bring you informative and entertaining guests and a variety of topics in a way that you can absorb and enjoy. Listen in weekdays and call in at 516-387-1944. We love interaction. All shows can be downloaded if you miss one or found on iTunes the next day. G's Power Hour is powered by Never Had It So Good Sports Media Network. Hi, I'm Tim Garris. Uh, you may know me as Timmy G. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's been two decades, but I want you to know I'm back in the argument. And I've got a mix of music that can help you relax and chill out. It's smooth. It's relaxing. It's chill out jazz. The soulful mix of smooth jazz, soul, and smooth R&B. So join me every Wednesday night, 10 p.m. to midnight, on K-Ham Radio. Well, welcome back to G's Power Hour on Never Had It So Good Entertainment. I am your host, G. Thanks so much for being with us today. Having, I guess, a bit of a technical issue. I don't know whether or not I was heard all of the time that I was just going on there. And uh, I know Dr. Tillman said he, you know, tried to call in too. So I don't know. Uh, uh, Dr. Tillman, are you there? Yes, I am. Can you hear me? Oh, goodness gracious. (laughs) Good morning. (laughs) Good morning. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm doing well today, and you? I'm doing okay. I'm doing okay. Okay, so yes, that's just the way life is sometimes. All right, so since we, you know, kind of missed some time, let's go ahead and get started. And, um, you know, we want want to talk about maybe uh, men's health a little bit, uh, especially since we're coming up on uh, Father's Day this weekend. Uh, so uh, what kind of uh, advice I guess you have or are there any kind of uh, new I guess procedures or medications or uh, advice out there that that we need to make sure that uh, our dads and their caregivers are are aware of? Well I think for men most of our health issues are gender non-specific as far as most of the common health problems. But then when you think about cancers, the two big ones, obviously for women are breast cancer, and for men it's prostate cancer. And so that's one of the things I thought I'd touch on a little bit today is prostate cancer. It has specific relevance for African-American men because we are at such high risk for it. And I think that's something uh, that we can touch on. I think overall for men, one of the things that I see, and I see lots of patients on a daily basis, men and women, and it's very interesting the uh, dynamic between physicians with men versus women. Women are very forthcoming. Um, when they present themselves, they're actually much more likely to come in 
for symptoms or complaints. And when they do come in, they're more, much more forthcoming with their complaints or symptoms as compared to men. You really have to pull their complaints out of them, or you really have to, like, you know, ask them pointed questions to get them to, you know, discuss what their problems may be. And quite often, women may come to appointments by themselves, but very often men will bring their wives with them, and that's often a big help because when the wives come, they often give a lot of the uh, history that the men sometimes will not give. Sometimes you'll ask the men questions, and they'll look at their wives for <laughs> for their wives to answer for them. And it sounds stereotypical or, or like I'm stereotyping the men, male patients, but, you know, over 15, 16 years, thousands and thousands of patients, that's the interaction that I see, that's the interaction that most of my colleagues see. It's just, it has to do with, you know, the emotional makeup of men, ability to communicate the way men communicate versus the way women communicate. And it's just a, a personality thing but I, but the, what I would like to encourage after saying all that is that men need to take control of their own health care. Men need to realize that seeing doctors, discussing your problems, discussing your physical problems, emotional problems, health problems is not a weakness. It's a strength. And in order to get treated and to help those problems, you have to be able to discuss them. And the, most problems, the sooner you address them, the better outcome you're going to have and the more likely they are to be easily treated. So is it a thing that – I'm just curious because you, you're absolutely right. That's that's kind of why I like – you know, my, my husband, I think he lets me know for scheduling reasons when he's going to the doctor, but I don't think he really wants to let me know when he's going to the doctor. And a few times right. I've had to go with him, you know, it's like – he, he's kind of just almost regretting it because the, <laughs> in a lot of cases, and I'm not a physician, but, you know, I, I, I read, I listen, you know, I try to gather mm-hmm. information, I ask questions. Um, and mm-hmm. so um, one of the last times I went with him, you know, the doctors almost regurgitating a lot of things that I, I told my husband and my husband, <laughs> you know, kind of <laughs> hanging his head a little bit. But, I mean, the thing is, is that is it, does it make a man feel less than by admitting that he has issues or might have issues? You know, does he, is he afraid maybe that he's going to be seen differently because he's human? In some, in some ways, yes. I think, um, you know, one of the things that um, – you know, we deal with is for men is the ability to express emotions or to feel comfortable expressing those emotions. And that's a cultural thing. And, you know, it's not like that in all cultures, not like that in all countries. And, but here in the U S you know, men have been conditioned not to express emotions, not to express weakness. And very often when a woman comes down with a sudden illness that they have to deal with, they tend to take it much better than men because the men, you know, sort of see themselves as invincible and all of a sudden they're having to face their potential mortality and it can be very difficult for them. And a lot of acute illnesses associated with depression for that reason is because, you know, you're walking around every day, you're not even considering your health, you're not considering your mortality and all of a sudden you're, you're ill, you don't know what's going to happen and, um, you know, all of a sudden you're faced with it. 
And for men that think they're invincible and, you know, you walk around with a lot of ego and it's, it can be sort of a daunting to have to face that all of a sudden when it's not something that you even consider on a daily basis. And as you know, you know, very often men don't communicate as well as women as, I mean, that's just the way that people are. You know, it's not something that uh, across the board that you would consider, but for most men, that's just the way it is, and it's the way that people have been conditioned. And um, yeah, that, and that's the way it is in our offices. We see we see it in our offices every day. All right. So I guess before we get, I guess, to any of the, and we do need to talk about, you know, like you were saying, prostate cancer. Um, my mm-hmm. father suffered with it. Um, but before Mine as we well. get to prostate cancer or any of the others, maybe we need to talk about mental wellness and how to make or get our men to say feel and say, it's okay that I have a problem. Let me just go ahead and, and man up and handle it, uh, you know, as, mm-hmm. you know, I've some of the phrases are, you know, it's, 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 so uh, <laughs> seriously, <laughs> because what happens is if you don't, you know, you know, pay me now, pay me later. If you don't mm-hmm. take care of it, if you don't do the pre- preventive maintenance, if you don't take care of something while it's a smaller issue, it can grow into a bigger issue. And then everybody's either gathered around your hospital bed or you're a gray site. Right. So well, where does it start is the question, right? Where do you start the yes. change? Because it's, 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 it's a systemic change that has to take place in our culture. And you see a lot of talk, um, you know, just in general, online, in the media, about, you know, how toxic masculinity is such a problem and, you know, in our culture. And, you know, that's neither here nor there, but there are certain gender norms or gender roles that have been over the years perpetuated that sort of contribute to the problem of men and their mental health. So just as an example, teenagers right now, and you look at mental health problems, both male teens and female teens are undergoing a mental health crisis, but the mental health crises are very different. <clears throat> and if we had mentioned um, a little bit, um, you and I had talked earlier off the phone about um, mental health and teenagers. And just to, to sort of underscore the differences in men and women, if you look at teen girls, they tend to have more internal mental health problems, meaning anxiety, depression, and so forth. Whereas teen males tend to have more external mental health problems, meaning conduct disorder, violence, um, you know, bullying, you know, those types of things that they may do to other people, experience with other people rather than just internal. And so those are, that's just, that just underscores how mental health issues are not the same between men and women. And those same differences tend to perpetuate as they grow older and become adults. And uh, that's one of the reasons why the approach has to be different between men and women, but also the fact that it starts at that young age and that differentiation occurs at that young age tells us that we need to address the problem much earlier. 
So even if you think about little kids, a little boy falls down and he scrapes his knee and, you know, you want to get up and go run and play. A little girl falls down and she scrapes her knee. You'll pick her up and cuddle her, you know, and, and baby her. And those are two different approaches based on the gender of the child. As subtle as that is, it sort of tells the little boy that he has to sort of suppress his emotions and continue like it never happened, whereas a little girl, you know, gets to deal with those emotions and gets to be, you know, coddled and, and comforted. And that in the long term becomes, you know, a way that causes men to be, you know, respond differently to trauma. Okay. Even and physical so, or emotional trauma. Okay. What is wrong with, tell me, what is wrong with going in a boy scraping his knee? What is wrong with going and giving that boy a hug? What it was wrong? Why, you know, why can't we go give the boy a hug? Why can't we get the girl up and say, "Okay, get up, you know, go play." I mean, who's this? Yeah, well, we. Why are we still defining this this way? We're supposed to be a progressive society, right? So, so why are we still defining this this way? Those are our internal biases, and they creep in even if and because you know. Even things, you know, we we are programmed to see things a certain way, do things a certain way, and we don't even realize it just because that's the way things are around us. So you get your values and your morals and the way you respond to certain situations from the social cues around you and from your environment. And so it's a, that's why I say it's a very difficult to change that. And so where do we start? You have to start somewhere. And the easiest place to start where you can make the, have the most effect with the most, with the least change is in children. So you plant little seeds and, you know, 20 years later, then, you know, it's a world of difference. Whereas if you're trying to affect that change in an adult that already has all these preconceived ideas and all these preconceived biases, it's extremely difficult. But in a child, you can have a huge impact with just a small amount of change. And that's why it's really important that if we're going to make these changes, that we, you know, make those changes in kids. But I'll give you an example. You know, you wouldn't consider yourself biased. You consider yourself, like you said, enlightened. And you said <laughs> you're going to, you're going you to call said, me on you, something. Go ahead. I'm going to call you out, right? But this okay. is but this is normal. This is normal. You said. Why can't men just man up and tell their doctor what their problems are? Right, right. right. I did say that because <laughs> I knew right. that was going to be a trigger. But yeah, I mean, but that's what that is what we that's what we say. I have a cousin that's who uses what we that phrase a lot. Yeah, <laughs> you know? right. And by the same token, I can't tell you how often I've seen women that end up in my office that have abnormal heart rhythms or you know different heart problems, and. You know, they've been seen over and over, and they've been told it's anxiety. You have anxiety. There's nothing wrong with you. It's anxiety. You know, sometimes mm-hmm. they have real problems. And so women face the opposite side of that where, you know, sometimes their problems aren't taken seriously. And that's very often some of the reasons right. that uh, women's health problems may be worse or they, or they may have poor outcomes in certain circumstances is because they're diagnosed later. And if they're diagnosed later, they're not taken as seriously. Mm-hmm. I, I I truly agree. I believe that. So, <laughs> all right. So let's get back to uh, the prostate cancer because uh, yes. yeah, that, the 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 issue that you and I are just talking about 
that's going to require more more examination and more thorough examination. So we know that's yeah. an issue, and we'll just have to deal with that at another time. Prostate cancer. Um, so let me ask you this. Uh, a lot of times men from what I've, what I've understood in the years I watched my dad and some others, sometimes it's not prostate cancer right away. Sometimes it's an enlarged prostate or there are other issues. Are there mm-hmm. certain determining factors that um, a, a man or, or even a, a man's partner or spouse should um, be aware of that might be a sign that uh, prostate cancer might might be an issue? Well, um, that's an excellent question. You bring up um, a couple of excellent points there. Um, There's prostate cancer, and Mm -hmm. then there are other prostate issues that cause symptoms that are not associated with prostate cancer. So one thing about the male prostate is that it continues to grow throughout life. And uh, the most common prostate symptom that you're going to see in men is not a prostate cancer symptom, but it's a symptom of an enlarged prostate. And uh, so that's what most men will deal with. That's more common than prostate cancer, but it's enlarged prostate. It's a benign process, has nothing to do with prostate cancer. What happens when you have an enlarged prostate, that's the problem where men have trouble emptying their bladder. They end up, you know having to urinate multiple times during the night, which is what we call nocturia, or they urinate and, uh, you know, they feel like they need to go again in 10 minutes because they didn't empty their bladder well. The bladder, the um, urination stream becomes slow and very weak because the bladder doesn't empty well. That's all in a large prostate making it difficult to empty your bladder. So that's called benign prostatic hypertrophy or BPH. And that's it. We treat it with medications or if it gets severe, the prostate, you can have a surgery for that, just, but that has, that's not prostate cancer. That is benign. That's what's called benign prostatic hypertrophy. Um, and like I said, that's, that's quite common and, and presents with a lot of symptoms. Now, um, contrastingly, prostate cancer very often is asymptomatic. There are no specific symptoms that you are going to see that are associated with prostate cancer. So all mm. the symptoms I just mentioned, you know, those mm-hmm. are prostate problems or complications but those aren't associated with prostate cancer. Prostate cancer most often, particularly early on, is, sympt- is asymptomatic. Now, if you start to get um, metastatic prostate cancer to other organs and so forth, then you will start to see some of the symptoms associated with that um, metastatic disease. But prostate cancer itself, most often asymptomatic. Okay. So when, when is the age to actually go get checked? Because, uh, so, you know, and, and uh, there are, there's the old-fashioned way, and there I don't know if there are <laughs> new ways of getting checked. I will let you handle that delicate issue. <laughs> so, you know, when people think of being evaluated for prostate cancer, you know, men always think about the digital rectal exam. And that can be a part of it, but that's not the true recommended under, underpinning for screening for prostate cancer. So I will quickly go over the screening recommendations for prostate cancer in the U.S. And it varies, the, the recommended screening criteria varies depending on your family history, your ethnicity, and so forth. So we're going to start African-American men. is a recommended 
Well, let me back up for a second. The screening test that we're going to talk about is called the PSA, a prostate-specific a prostate specific antigen, and it's a test that your doctor can easily order for you. And it's basically mm-hmm. a test that if you start to develop prostate cancer, that number will start to elevate. It can be elevated okay. for other reasons as well, but if your doctor does that test, gets a baseline on you, and repeats it later, and it starts to elevate, then the next step may be to do another test, such as an imaging test to look at the prostate, or they'll correlate those findings with the rectal exam. So let's go back to the recommendations for when you should start having PSA blood testing done. So for African-American men, the recommendation is starting at 45 years old, because African-American men are at higher risk for prostate cancer. And basically, about one in six black men will develop prostate cancer in a lifetime. That risk is 50% higher than other ethnicities for developing prostate cancer. And also the risk of death for black men is about twice as high as other ethnicities from prostate cancer. So we are at much higher risk for developing prostate cancer, at much higher risk for developing high-grade prostate cancers, and at higher risk for death of prostate, death from prostate cancer. So that's one of the reasons why the recommended age for starting screenings is 45 years old. So for other people that are at average risk, the recommendation for them for screening is to start at 50 years old. So there's a five-year difference there. Now, if we look at even an even higher risk group, those are men of any ethnicity that have multiple first-degree relatives that have prostate cancer, so they're at really high risk for a genetic predisposition for prostate cancer, they should start screening at the age of 40 with a PSA. And typically that PSA is done once a year with routine lab testing. Any questions about that? Okay. No, I'm, I'm, well, I'm just going to ask you, uh, once you find out that you have prostate cancer, or, or, you know, you predisposed or whatever, what treatments are there now? Because I I remember uh, the treatment that my father had and the side effects that he had. And I Mm -hmm. do remember that there were uh, uh, more progressive treatments, um, more new new tech treatments um, Mm -hmm. after he had already had his treatment um, that I Mm -hmm. wish he would have been privy to. So can you talk about the treatments for prostate cancer? Well, before I get to treatment, why don't we go through, we talked about um, the screening. And so say we'll go from screening through diagnosis and then into treatment, okay? So we talked about screening. So the most common um, screening test is the PSA, the blood test. And like I said, most often, you know, if if you're at risk for that or you're just doing routine screening, your doctor will do it and it'll be normal. They'll check it next year. It's normal. And then say the year after that, it goes up by triple. So at that point, your doctor may be a little concerned. There are other things that can create uh, an elevated PSA not related to prostate cancer. Say you're having some pain in your prostate or something like that when they do your digital rectal exam, they may think, I wonder if he has a prostate infection. So they may treat you with antibiotics and repeat your your, um, PSA test. If it's still elevated, they may then say, well, there is concern that he may have, you know, prostate cancer. So then what's the next test that they're going to do? They may do an imaging test. Um, the options now, there may, they may do a prostate um, ultrasound. And now the thing that's really starting to catch on for diagnosis 
even for biopsy guiding is um, prostate MRI. And that's one of the newer technologies you were asking if, about some of the newer things. And probably the most game-changing thing right now, at least for diagnose, diagnosis and um, surveillance of prostate cancer, is MRI. And it's made a huge difference. It will, you know, it has the ability to pick up two to three times, um, yeah, since it has two to three times the sensitivity as, as opposed to just ultrasound alone in detecting um, prostate cancer. So MRI has, is really a huge jump forward in diagnosis of prostate cancer. So if your PSA is elevated, and then um, the next, the gold standard for diagnosing prostate cancer is biopsy. So biopsy with ultrasound guidance versus biopsy with MRI. If MRI is available, that's going to be the best option. Um, ultrasound guided is the second best option. It's not as accurate and not as likely to yield the result that you're looking for. It's more likely to miss prostate cancers than MRI. MRI may not be available to everyone, but or your insurance company may not favor MRI. That's another issue as well. But it is the better technology. Um, so the first thing after you have an elevated PSA, the purpose of a screening test is not to diagnose something. It's to a screening test needs to be cheap, easily available, and easily applicable. But a screening test is, is designed to cast a wide net. So you may get false positives, but if you get a positive screening test, then the, the next test is going to be a test that's going to be more specific and uh, give you a more accurate result, but also it's often much more expensive. So after the screening test is positive, then you're going to do a biopsy with either ultrasound guidance or I, hopefully MRI if it's available to you. If that biopsy comes back as a positive uh, biopsy, at that point, you have a diagnosis of prostate cancer, and then you'd have to decide what the treatment for that prostate cancer is, and that can be very variable. Um, one thing about prostate cancer is it is extremely common, and uh, one thing um, that we found out in autopsy studies is that most men that die of old age have cancerous prostate cells. They're very common. Most, most men will die with prostate cancer than die from prostate cancer because it's just that common. It tends to be also tends to be a very slow-growing cancer, and so one of the treatments for prostate cancer is nothing. We call I it surveillance. Going to ask, yes. because I, I've I have heard it's like well, you know, just you know, I've heard that there have been some recommendations that you kind of just live with it, um, right. which it, it kind of shocked me at first. But then mm -hmm. after mm -hmm. seeing some of the um, side effects of some of the treatments, you kind of wonder, mm -hmm. especially in terms of quality of life, which is the better alternative, you know. Right. So, and so if, if a man does live with prostate cancer, is there, I mean, I, I, because I don't know, is there pain? Is there something that is going to complicate the remainder of that person's life if they decide to just live with the cancer? It should not. Um, just to just to take a step back real quick, um, okay. we have talked about we've talked about screening. Screening is not recommended for men greater than the age of seventy because if they okay. are found to have cancer and they're over the age of seventy, the likelihood that it's going to progress to the point that it will need to be treated is very low. 
they're much more likely to die from something else than prostate cancer. So it's not even recommended to be screened above the age of 70 because it is such a low-grade cancer. So if you develop prostate cancer and you're 72 years old, the fact likelihood that it's going to cause you any problems is slim to none, and it's most likely going to be treated by – well, it's most likely not going to be treated. It's going to be surveilled rather than treated. And that's one of the concerns about um, PSA screening. I, I didn't go deeply into it, but there there are some downsides of PSA screening. The, the primary downside being overdiagnosis. So you may be, you're diagnosing cases of prostate cancer that don't necessarily need to be treated because they're low-grade cancers. There's no evidence of metastasis, and they may grow very slowly and never cause a problem. But once you diagnose prostate cancer, like you mentioned, a lot of people may not be comfortable just saying, let's just watch it. They want to be treated, or the doctor may decide to be really aggressive and decide to treat them, and all of a sudden you have all of these side effects that you may get from the treatment, whether it's radiation therapy or surgical therapy or the medications. There are side effects associated with all that, and so you may be introducing side effects to a patient that was previously asymptomatic that had cancer that was never going to be a problem for them. So overdiagnosis, overtreatment becomes a problem and that's the controversial side of whether or not you should screen for prostate cancer. So there are some negatives associated with screening. Screening does pick up more cases of prostate cancer, but they don't all need to be treated, but sometimes they are treated when they shouldn't be treated. And so that sort of, so, you know, underscores, you know, some of the side effects and, you know, the side effects can be problematic and they can be more they can cause more symptoms in the prostate cancer itself. So I guess what we've got to change, I guess, our thinking about not only prostate cancer, I mean, but definitely about that, but about some other diseases as well, possibly, that, yes. okay, just because you have it and just because you know you have it doesn't mean that the best way to handle it is to automatically treat it. Correct. Okay. And, and that's, that is that's not, hard. Yeah. Yes because that is not the medical culture in the United States. That is not our right. culture. If there's a problem and there's a way to fix it, um, the idea is it fix should be it. fixed. That's what the patients expect. That's what the referring doctors expect. And that's very mm -hmm. often what the specialists will do, because even if we know that it's not necessarily, doesn't necessarily need to be treated, there's pressure coming from all sides to treat it. And if you don't do it, guess what? They're going down the road to somebody else and they're going to treat it. Mm -hmm. And so very often know, specialists get sort of squeezed in, in, in between the patients and the referring physicians, and you, you know, end up doing things you that may not necessarily need to be done. And most of the time, you know, the treatment is low risk with the low risk of side effects, but if a patient is completely asymptomatic and they're not having any symptoms at all, even if the risk of side effects is, you know, 2%, 5%, that's greater than the no symptoms they walked in with. So you just introduce a whole new problem for them that they did not have before treating something that did not necessarily need to be treated. And so we were okay. talking about, um, uh, I'll just get to low risk and surveillance real quick. And so okay. in patients that when you, the one thing that MRI is really good at is that MRI is good at identifying a low risk prostate cancer. And if you have prostate cancer and it's not metastatic it's low risk. You've done a biopsy. It's a low-grade prostate cancer. The likelihood that that's going to cause any major problems is not very significant. And so what a lot of doctors will recommend is that you get an imaging test done 
once a year. They will continue to follow it. And if things change or it becomes aggressive or starts to grow, then you may change course in your plan of care. However, if everything's stable, there's not much progression year after year after year, you may continue to surveil. And so, you know, that is a case where the patient's asymptomatic. You've diagnosed them. There's no significant change year after year, and you haven't introduced any type of medical therapy or surgery that has put them at risk of side effects or at risk of the complication of, of surgery. And so that is, that's a very reasonable plan of care for the appropriate patient. A much more aggressive prostate cancer or prostate cancer that's already metastatic, and those are patients that will be candidates for a more aggressive procedure, such as a radical prostatectomy, a robotic surgery, and, you know, certain medications as well. It just depends on, you know, the patient's presentation and severity of their prostate cancer. So we we are going to, because we've just blown through some breaks for various reasons, but um, <laughs> <laughs> but it was important. But we, we, we're going to um, take a, a quick break, and then when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about this. And then wanted to talk to Dr. Tillman about uh, something that came out today, like I said, about um, the kids in the screens and mental health. So uh, if you have questions or comments, the number is 516-387-1944. G's Power Hour on Never Had It So Good Entertainment. We'll be right back. Over the past 60 years, Dove Beauty Bar's superior formula has remained unchanged. But when it comes to beauty, everything changed. Together, we redefined beauty. We said no to stereotypes and yes to every type. We let go of judgments and embraced what makes us unique. We're proud to have been there with you caring for you every step of the way. Here's to the next 60 years. Having a wedding, reception, family reunion, planning a banquet, or some other fundraising event. Need to share your knowledge through a workshop or seminar, or it's a difficult time and you need to plan a wake or repast. Let us help. At our gatherings, let us reduce the stress and make the occasion memorable, treasured. Call our gatherings at 407-968-9387 or email ourgatherings at yahoo.com. Let us help plan your special event. Good afternoon. Welcome back to G's Power Hour on Never Had It So Good Entertainment. I am your host, G. Thanks so much for being with us today. We are here with Dr. Uh, Taiwan Tillman on this Wellness Wednesday, um, especially uh, addressing a serious issue for men and, and their loved ones uh, who want to make sure that they're uh, being taken care of properly. So um, and so right now we're talking about prostate cancer, and we're going to talk about some other stuff too. But um, I wanted to, to ask you too about uh, prostate cancer in terms of treatments and therapies and stuff, I think at the time, like I said, it's been a long time. Uh, when my, It was one of the first cancers. My dad had three different cancers, and I wanted to ask you about that too, but um, the first one that he was, um, not the first one, I'm sorry, the second one he was diagnosed with was prostate cancer. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, at, time, at that time, I think they had like uh, chemo and then radiation, and then they had the radioactive seeds and stuff mm-hmm. like that for, for treatment. So um, mm-hmm. just was curious in terms of are they still doing, because like I said, it's been a while, are they still doing any of those types of, of treatments or what are they doing now? 
they're they're doing all of those treatments and more. And the thing about um, prostate cancer and and most cancers and medical ailments for that is that every treatment has to be individualized for the patient. And mm-hmm. the more options you have, it doesn't necessarily mean some of the older options go away, but you have more options for different patients. And so, say, for example, um, if you're looking at, um, you know, you talk about radiation therapy or we talk about um, chemotherapy. Chemotherapy is for someone that has, say you have um, prostate cancer that's been there for a long time. At the time of diagnosis, you have metastatic lesions noted in your spine. So you have cancer that's already spread beyond the prostate itself, and it's affecting other areas of the body. If it's in the spine, you know it's also in lymph nodes. So you can't go out and remove the prostate. You can't remove the lymph nodes. You can't remove the spine. You can't remove all those things to treat or try and cure the cancer. Um, you also can't do radiation therapy on all those different areas. And so the treatment for a patient like that is going to be chemotherapy. Chemotherapy is systemic, and you hope to get all of the areas that are involved with the cancer. Um, you get systemic symptoms from it because there's no way to just localize the chemotherapy to just those different areas that you're trying to treat, being the prostate, lymph nodes, and in this particular example, um, metastatic lesions in the um, bones of the spine. Um, so in that case, that's a case where you may consider chemotherapy. Now, say someone has localized lesions in their prostate, um, you've been able to prove that it's not metastatic and you want to eliminate the uh, the uh, cancer within the prostate. In that case, a radical prostatectomy may be a good choice, which means you remove the prostate. So classically, that was a surgery that was done by hand, fraught with lots of post-op complications, bleeding, impotence, urinary incontinence, and so forth. And the step forward for that has been robotic surgery, where you have much more precise control over the instruments. You're able to avoid certain nerves. You're able to make smaller incisions. So the bleeding is less. The risk of impotence is less. The risk of urinary incontinence is less postoperatively. And so that's one of the newer things that a lot of the prostate surgeries are at experience and experienced hands are done um, with robotic surgeries. And so that's, that's uh, another choice. Um, radiation therapy. Um, radiation therapy has uh, taken a, a giant leap forward. One of the big problems with radiation therapy was always, um, I don't know if your father had radiation therapy, but at that time, you said it was a long time ago, radiation therapy couldn't be pinpointed the way it can now. So if you had a radiation therapy to your prostate, they also had radiation therapy to portions of your colon and any other organs in the nearby area. So you would end up with long-term problems, um, something called radiation colitis or um, any of a number of other complications to related organs in the area, scar tissue and so forth. And that was a, a, a problem with older types of radiation therapy. Nowadays, radiation therapy can be pinpointed to a very small area within an organ or limited to an organ itself without having effects on all of the surrounding organs and tissue. So radiation therapy has also taken a big jump forward, and so a lot of the side effects that you used to see with radiation therapy, you know, you don't see anymore as well for that reason. So therapy and treatments and surgeries and so forth have come a long way in some ways because there's new therapies available, but also in some ways because they have been able to improve on 
the uh, older therapies with newer techniques and uh, with newer technology. Okay. Um, life expectancy after treatment, can you talk about that? Life expectancy after treatment. So there is, well, it, it depends on is whether treatment was curative or not, but um, in general, the life expectancy a diagnosis of prostate cancer on average is five years, and that's if you take all comers. And if you look at, you know, looking at individual situations, that's going to be very individualized based on the grade of cancer, the stage of cancer, and the result of whatever the chosen mode of treatment was. But on average, um, the the lifespan is is ten years after diagnosis of prostate cancer. Okay. And so that that keep in mind, you know, that some people that um, you know have advanced prostate cancer, but you know there are lots of people, and that is sort of that sort of a biased number as well, because there are lots of people that have prostate cancer that are undiagnosed. And like I said, okay. you know, all these patients, if you you know take ten thousand patients that died at the age of eighty that did not have a diagnosis of prostate cancer that died from any of a number of other causes. And you take their prostates and you slice them up and look at them under the microscope. A large number of those patients will have prostate cancer that was completely asymptomatic, never gave them any trouble, and never would have, you know, years later, still would have been asymptomatic. So, prostate cancer by and large is extremely common, extremely underdiagnosed, and I don't know that it needs to be diagnosed <laughs> at any higher rate than it is because that would probably have even more patients being treated that you know don't necessarily. Warrant. Okay. So it's a, it's a complex it's a complex issue because you know it is can be a very low grade cancer that can be very asymptomatic and not mm-hmm. at all life threatening and you know that doesn't even need to be managed. Okay. So you know, but the but the best uh, advice is to check with your doctor, right? Exactly. Exactly. And most of the time, you know, your doctor will give you recommendations for screening, which most of the time they're going to recommend screening. But the question is, if your prostate-specific antigen starts to elevate, what's the next step? Most of the time, what your primary care doctor will do is refer you to a specialist that would be a urologist that would then guide you through more detailed um, steps of what you should be doing next. And then most likely, that's who you would be following. If something is significantly abnormal, those are the ones that would be following your surveillance or following your PSA or any other testing that they would be doing on a routine basis. Okay. Now I'm going to deviate a little bit. I know we still have to get to one other subject, but um, does having one cancer make you susceptible to having other types of cancers? Hmm. That is yes and no. So a lot of cancers have, um, similar underlying causes or similar underlying risk for increasing the likelihood of developing cancer. So if you look at, um, you know, a lot of cancers will have obesity as an underlying cause. And if that's the case, then the different cancers that are related to obesity, you know, you may be at higher risk for those. But an even better example is smoking. So when you think about smoking, there's some, you know, extremely high risk of uh, cancer, lung cancer from smoking, right? Also, mm-hmm. pancreatic cancer. And so, you know, those are things that they have the same underlying risk factors. So one 
underlying risk factor may increase the risk of multiple different cancers. In addition to that, um, treatment of some cancers can increase the risk of other cancers in the future. And so that's another thing, you know, where radiation therapy, um, certain certain drugs and medications might increase your risk of, of other cancers in the future. So it may seem that these cancers are clustering, but sometimes it's because one thing leads to another. And another thing that um, causes a very high risk of cancer that most people don't know about is um, transplants. If you get any type of an organ transplant, the uh, a part of your immune system is part of what keeps cancers at bay and keeps people from developing cancer. Well, if your immune system is paralyzed by anti-rejection drugs after a transplant, mm. then your risk of cancer goes sky high. One of the more common reasons that people transplants die is not because of whatever the organ that was transplanted. It's because of cancers they develop due to having to be chronically treated with anti-rejection drugs. Okay. That's a conversation for another day. Uh, <laughs> right? And only and only because I, I do want to get to this other one that I kind of teased uh, that, that came out today, and it's, it's kind of crucial because uh, we have summer coming up, and um, our young people, well, some of them will have a lot of spare time on their hands. Um, so uh, I, I was listening earlier today, and uh, there was apparently a, a study that talks about the uh, effect uh, the screen times effect on mental health. And so uh, they, I think there was a suggestion about no more than um, uh, three hours a, a day, which I'm like, why are you spending three hours a day if that's not your job? Uh, or, you know, <laughs> there's so much other stuff to do. Um, but can you talk a little bit about, about the screen time and, and mental health issue? Yes, I would love to. I think um, if you're looking, if you think three to four hours is not a lot, I mean, it's a lot. On average, kids are spending, teenagers are spending seven, eight, nine hours a day screen time. And I mean, that's, they spend almost half their waking hours in front of a screen. Half. And compared to adults, you know, you're looking at, a much, much smaller percentage because, you know, most older adults didn't grow up with screens all the time. And so, you know, they don't, their lives don't revolve around screens. And when we say screen time, we're talking cell phones, computers, video games. And we Uh touched a little bit earlier in the difference between boys and girls. And if you look at screen time, they tend to have relatively um, similar screen times, but the screen time is different. So if you look at girls, most of their screen time, particularly the early teen girls, most of their screen time is social media. And if you look at boys, most of their screen time is video games. And so we talked a little earlier about how um, the, the mental health challenges between younger boys and girls are different in their teen years. If you think about social media, what kind of social anxiety, depression issues those things may give you, well, social media, you're looking at all of these people that are posting these perfect lives or high, real things that aren't necessarily even realistic as their daily mm-hmm. life. And, you know, these kids are sitting at home in their bedroom on their phone looking at these other kids living this perfect life that's, you know, being crafted and, and created that's not a real life. It's just a highlight reel or even things that, you know, they're not really doing. And so it makes these 
these little girls feel like they're missing out or they're they're underachieving because they're not doing what they're seeing somebody else posting in their social media. And it can lead to things like depression, anxiety, low self-esteem, some of the internal mental health issues that we talked about before. Whereas you have the boys spending much more of their time on video games. And the culture with video games, particularly the video games where, you know, they play online and they have online groups, they're connected to headsets and they're talking. The culture that has developed with the video games for boys has become a very toxic culture um, where there is misogyny, there's racism, um, there's violence in the games, violence in their discussions, and uh, violence in their chat rooms about these games. And so it creates a whole different type of mental health problem for the younger boys. And, you know, when you hear about some of these kids that have done the school shootings and so forth, a lot of times they'll go, they'll go back to video games and and chat rooms and so forth where, you know, they sort of develop some of these ideas or develop some of the violent tendencies that, you know, may have led to what they decided to do. Um, So there's, there's definitely differences between boys and girls and the screen time, while it may be equivalent, very different types of screen time that um, creates a very different types of problems for these kids, boys versus girls. Let me ask you something. (laughs) Um, because, yeah, I, I mean, obviously since I was a kid or whatever, as a young person, screen time has changed. Because there were screens in my life, but I think it just is, I think part of it has to do with the way that we explain or, or handle what our, our kids are, are watching. Uh, do we have discussions with them? Like, for example, uh, mom parents used to, especially my mom, used to make me watch the news, current mm-hmm. events and everything. But mm-hmm. after news time, and, 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 and fortunately at that time was where you had a half-hour news show at 6 o'clock and then another one at 11, so you didn't have 24-hour news at that time. Right. And so, but yeah, so there were, but after news, there was discussion about what was watched on the news. Right. And, you know, or do you have any questions, you know, and, and you know, this, this is, you know, you talked about how you, know, you put things into perspective because, you know, you were only getting a snippet and you were also possibly just getting uh, one or two persons, uh, people's perspective on right. an event that was going on. So I, I think the component that is missing is having a, a discussion with the parents where the parents get a chance to, to pull the child back into reality. You know, mm-hmm. this is a game. Like they were saying, used to say, this is a test. This is only a test. This is a game. This is only a game. Right. Okay. <laughs> I think <laughs> that there needs to be some clarity here. Um, a TV show, same way. I mean, just because you like Superman doesn't mean you're going to put on a cape and go jump off of buildings or, or, you know, go hit somebody uh, and they get back up, you know, it, it just, that just isn't, isn't real. And I, I think, for example, especially with the mass shootings, that part of the issue is that you have people that watch these games and, and I could be wrong, but you have in some er- some, pers- you know, situations where people watch these games and figure out how, oh, how easy it is just to go and take out, their anxiety in someone with, with a semi-automatic or whatever, not realizing mm-hmm. 
that there are consequences. And I think that's a, another thing, too. My husband and I talk about that quite often is that uh, no one really discusses that there are consequences to actions. Um, you know, so I, I 100% you tell agree me. with that. I 100% agree with yeah. that. Um, I mean, in general, um, teenagers lack perspective when it comes to life in general. And, you know, that makes it difficult to see the long-term or even not-so-long-term consequences of their current actions. And when that is multiplied by, like you said, you know, video games, desensitization by seeing violence on TV, seeing violence in YouTube videos and, you know, TikTok videos and seeing violence, you know, where they have complete websites dedicated to, you know, fights and so forth, it becomes normalized. And okay. so it desensitizes you and, you know, you don't see any of those people, you know, suffering consequences. And you, you see people literally hurting other people just to post a video so, they, so that they can get more clicks and they can become more popular. And yeah. the problem, the problem with screen time, you know, mm-hmm. our, you know, the screen time that you mentioned, where you're watching TV and you're learning about current events, you're learning, learning about things around you, you know, that's real. You can discuss uh-huh. it with your parents, as opposed to when you're on social media or you're on these video games. That's not something that kids do with their parents. They do that on their own, and they don't yeah. want to do it with their parents. And their parents, it's not something, not even a world that their parents are used to being in. And so right. they don't even know how to navigate those issues and, and, you know, those websites and what the kids are thinking and the way they're talking and the way they're, what they're discussing. And so it makes it Dr. very Silver. difficult to interact with your parents. Yes. <laughs> I lost track of time. Are we we time? have got to go. Oh, <laughs> yeah. okay. We can pick We're going to have you back time. soon. Okay, yes. great. And thank you so thank you so much, Dr. Tillman. Thank you all for listening. This has been D's Power Hour. I never had it so good entertainment. Be well, be safe, be blessed. And please remember, all real power comes from God. Take care. <laughs>